When we left Paul and Barnabas last week, they had sailed from their missionary trip in Galatia back to Antioch in Syria, which was where they started. And Paul and Barnabas stay in Antioch for a long time. I think Peter comes up from Jerusalem around this time to visit them and the other believers in Antioch. Now, this part of the story is retold by Paul in Galatians 2 rather than in Acts. But chronologically, I think Galatians 2 happens here at the beginning of Acts 15. Remember that the Holy Spirit has previously shown Peter a vision of all sorts of unclean animals and told him to eat them. Now, Peter, in his dream, protested three times, but the Holy Spirit told him, if God declares something clean, it is clean. And that's when the Lord sent Peter to the home of the Gentile Cornelius to minister to his household. So that's the backstory here. So now when Peter meets all the new Gentile believers in Antioch, he welcomes them and sits and eats with the Gentiles, even though that is specifically against Jewish law. Now, Peter now knows that God has declared the Gentiles clean and acceptable in every way. Well, while Peter is there, other Jewish believers from Judea also arrive in Antioch. Now, they're powerful men within the Church of Believers in Jerusalem, and Peter knows they keep strictly to Jewish law. So when they arrive, Peter begins to avoid sitting with the Gentiles at meals. And pretty soon, the other Jews in the Antioch community of believers do the same. So now, all of a sudden, the Antioch believers are sitting with Jews separate from Gentiles. Even Barnabas starts sitting at the Jewish table. To make matters worse, some of the Jews from Judea start teaching the believers that they're not really saved unless they've also been circumcised. Now, this is a very hot topic for the early Christian um, believers. They have no pattern for how to co-mingle Jews and Gentiles. And there's a division in the new church with many Jews saying the Gentile believers absolutely must be circumcised and follow the law in order to truly be disciples of Jesus. It is a serious fork in the road. Jesus always talked about an outward-looking faith. He talked about loving others and preparing ourselves to serve and about being the light in the world and telling people how much God loves them and how God wants to heal them. But now, the concern of these early believers seems to be making sure that you yourself are saved. Even the meaning of the word saved has shifted. When Jesus used it, he meant being healed and made whole. But now it is coming to mean whether you are in or out of the believing community. This is a huge theological shift, and it still impacts Christianity today. I don't think I can overstate the importance, the significance of this shift. But nowadays, it goes unnoticed and unremarked. I, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon preached about it. But this right here is a foundational and seismic change. Before, Jesus talked about which direction you were moving. What mattered was moving towards God or away from God. And if you were moving away from God, Jesus called you to change direction, to change your mind. The literal meaning of the word repentance is to change your mind. Jesus never drew lines around God. Everyone was in all the time. He just wanted us to realize it, to see the kingdom of God all around us, ready for us to participate in.
But now the early believers are beginning to draw lines around God, defining who is in the community of believers and who is out, who is saved and who is not. The model here is one I adapted from Dave Andrews' work in his book, Christianity. Look at what the boundary is doing to individual people. I've shown people moving towards God in green and people moving away from God in red. But now let's remove the directional arrows and look to see who is in the circle at any given moment and who is out. Look at this. There are people in green moving towards God who fall outside the circle and people moving away from God in red who fall inside it. Any circle we try to draw around God cannot help but be false and unreliable. We are never going to get it right with all the green dots in and all the red dots out. From the time of Paul until today, Christians have wasted so much energy trying to define the boundaries around the church and around God. This whole exercise is a terrible sin, meaning it misses the mark entirely. We have done terrible harm to the world, to faith, to Christianity, to the church, and to people when we've taken this approach. Jesus had it right. There should be no lines. There are only people moving towards God or away from God. And God is pursuing all of us. We are simply here to minister to each other, to come alongside each other, and to shine light in dark places. We don't need to be putting up barriers to God. This image of drawing a circle around God or the church to include or exclude people is one we need to carry in our heads always. It can help us when we ourselves run up against these false barriers and the people who defend them. And this is the lens through which we need to understand what's happening in this first generation of new believers. Make a note that the word saved is being used as shorthand for being inside or outside that barrier. But also make a note, that's not what it should mean, according to Jesus. So when these Jewish believers come to Antioch and tell the Antioch Christians that even though they are baptized in water in the name of Jesus and have received the Holy Spirit, they're not really saved unless they are circumcised. Remember and recognize that what they are doing is setting up a barrier around God and the church. And that barrier is whether or not you are circumcised. If you're circumcised, you're in, you're saved, you're part of the church. If you're not circumcised, you're out. Also notice that this is not a personal safety issue. Barriers are not the same things as boundaries. You can have protective boundaries when necessary to prevent someone from inflicting harm on you or upon the group. But the Gentiles are not inflicting any harm on the Jews here, other than possibly blurring the lines of who is protected as a Jew under Roman law. Now, that may frighten the Jewish believers, but I'm not so sure God is particularly concerned about Roman law. So this requirement for, quote, circumcision and following the law, end quote, is not a legitimate boundary. It's a barrier to God and to the church. And I think God cares a very great deal about us setting up barriers like that. Jesus, in fact, had some pretty harsh words to say to the religious leaders of his time who set up barriers and placed burdens of law upon the shoulders of the people. Well, Paul immediately realizes the danger of what is going on, and he's not having any of it. 
Peter, he says right in front of everyone, what are you doing? Yes, you're a Jew, but you haven't been living like one. Why act like it now? Why would you compel the Gentiles to act like they're Jewish? No one is made just or righteous by following the law, but only through faith from Jesus Christ. Notice the word from here. Translations often say in, faith in Jesus Christ, rather than faith from Jesus Christ. But the Greek does not say faith in Jesus Christ. The Greek word here is in the genitive form, which means the faith being discussed belongs to or is faith from Jesus Christ. Faith is not something we have to strive for. It is available as a gift straight from Jesus. And it is that faith that makes us just. It happens over time as it grows us and changes us. This growth towards justice does not automatically happen when we're sticklers for the law. We ourselves in modern times know this. We know that the people who are the most strict about rules and laws often seem to also be the most hard-hearted people of all. How many times have we ourselves seen justice sacrificed in order to meet the letter of the law? It is following Jesus that changes our hearts, not following the law. And that's what Paul is saying to Peter. Now, Paul is pretty riled up here. He sees the barriers these folks are throwing up around God and even throwing up to divide the church community internally. He sees that the church is in danger of falling right back into a system of rules and regulations and missing the point of Jesus entirely. I think Barnabas comes alongside Paul pretty quickly here. He was taken in by Peter's actions at first, but I think Barnabas sees Paul's point right away. Peter, though, eh, Peter still has to make a decision. He still thinks he'll be sinning if he doesn't keep all the commandments of the law. His dilemma is that if the Gentiles don't keep all the commandments, they'll be sinning, and Peter, by eating with them, etc., would also be sinning. He, he, Paul realizes that the crux of the matter for Peter is Peter's desire to be clean and holy before the Lord. That's, that's how Peter understands what it means to follow Christ. So Paul says, Peter, if we Jews are seeking to become just and righteous by following Christ and end up realizing that we ourselves are sinners, it's okay. It doesn't mean Christ is leading us into sin. I have been crucified with Christ. Like him, I have died to the law at the hands of the law, but I have died to the law so I can live, or actually so Christ can live in me. If I try to go back to how I was before, that would be the worst thing I could do. Don't try to do that, Peter. Don't go back to the law. The Son of God loved me and gave himself up, handed himself over, and let him be, be himself be betrayed for my sake. So now, the life I live in this body, I live through faith in him. If I could become just and righteous by following the, the law, then what would be the point of the Messiah, the Christ? He would have died for nothing. Paul is trying to remind Peter that he knows being circumcised and eating right isn't what is actually making him clean and righteous, that all, it's always been God who makes him clean and righteous. In the same way, following Jesus will lead him into all righteousness without all the circumcision and other trappings of the law. That's what Jesus came to show us. And if Peter goes back to depending on the law, then everything that Jesus said and did and suffered was for naught. 
The passages in Galatians and Acts don't indicate how Peter responds. The next time he shows up in the story, he's back in Jerusalem. So I think Peter leaves Antioch at this point and returns to Jerusalem. He's got to get this sorted out once and for all in his heart and and in his head. He's a strictly observant Jew and he completely welcomes the Gentiles as believers, but he's got to figure out where he stands on the issue of circumcision and whether the Gentiles need to follow the requirements of the law once, once they become believers. Well, even though Peter apparently leaves, the other Jewish believers from Jerusalem remain. Paul and Barnabas argue with them, but they refuse to budge. It's an issue that probably horrifies the Gentile believers, and it's definitely an existential threat to the new church. So the believers send Paul and Barnabas and some of the other believers down to Jerusalem to bring the issue to the elders and apostles there for resolution. Peter, of course, is one of those apostles. As an authority within the church, Peter is second only to James, the brother of Jesus. Paul and Barnabas go, not knowing where Peter will land on this issue. Paul and Barnabas and the others are welcomed warmly by the believers in Jerusalem who want to hear all the news from Antioch. But after the initial rush of news about Paul and Barnabas' work among the Gentiles, some of the believers who are Pharisees get up and say, the Gentiles must be circumcised and they must obey the law of Moses. Now remember, Paul himself is a prominent Pharisee So he understands where these guys are coming from. And honestly, he does see the value in being circumcised because, for one, it allows him to enter the synagogues and speak with and be in the homes of Jews who are not yet believers. That's how he can minister to them. Like Jesus, Paul has been a Jew from birth. But he also sees that the Holy Spirit completely accepts the Gentiles as they are. Most Gentiles aren't going to need to be going into the homes of unbelieving Jews to evangelize them, so there's like no real reason for all of them to be circumcised. But if they aren't circumcised, how will Jewish and Gentile believers coexist? The Jewish believers won't easily let go of their belief that all Gentiles are unclean. And as you can imagine, a long discussion ensues. Finally, Peter gets up. Paul and Barnabas are surely holding their breath. What has Peter decided? Peter says, my brothers, you know what happened to me. You know how the Holy Spirit made it clear that Gentiles are clean and acceptable to God. He's talking about his vision at the house of Cornelius, the Roman centurion, the one about eating the unclean animals or the vision that led to the house of Cornelius. Peter says, God decided that I should go to these Gentiles so they could hear the good news straight from me. And they heard and believed. And God saw their hearts and accepted them and gave them the Holy Spirit in exactly the same way he gave it to us. Their faith made them clean. So why are you putting God on trial by laying on the necks of these Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have ever been able to bear? This is wrong. It is by the grace of the Lord Jesus that we and the Gentiles are saved. I can imagine the swelling within Paul's heart to hear Peter echo his own words. What humility Peter is showing. His true heart for the Lord has carried him through. Paul and Barnabas stand up then and tell all about the miracles that God has been doing among the Gentiles. And after Paul and Barnabas speak, all eyes turn to James 
the brother of Jesus. James is usually portrayed as being old, but if Jesus was Mary's eldest son, and if he died at the age of 33 or so, then James is only in his early 30s. Some people think James was Jesus' half-brother, an older son by a former wife of Joseph's. We don't really know. Either way, as the brother of Jesus, his opinion carries tremendous weight. James says, We have heard the words of our brother Simon Peter, who was the first one whom God revealed that the Gentiles are also a people chosen by God. This should not be a surprise to us, for the prophets themselves told us, quote, the Lord says, in that day I will repair David's fallen tabernacle and rebuild its ruins, so that the remnant, those Jews scattered after the fall of Israel and Judah, so that remnant and all of the Gentiles who bear my name may seek me. So James is quoting an ancient prophecy in the Hebrew Bible here. It's from Amos. Also notice that, quote, in that day, marker that the prophets used when they were talking about the end times. This is one of several places in prophecy that God specifically speaks about the Gentiles being included in God's promises of blessing and restoration. James continued, it is my judgment that we not harass the Gentiles who are turning to God. Rather, we should write them and tell them to keep away from that which has been polluted by idols. The words here usually mean meat sacrifice to idols. To avoid porneas, sexual immorality, where we get our English word pornography from and to avoid the meat of strangled animals and blood. This is what the law of Moses has taught from the earliest times until this very day. Well, that does the trick. James has sided with Peter, Paul, and Barnabas. Doesn't get better than that. The believers are now unanimous in their decision. So they sit down and write a letter spelling these things out. And they send the letter back to Antioch in the hands of Paul and Barnabas, as well as Judas Barsabbas and Silas from Jerusalem. The believers in Antioch are greatly relieved to hear this news. And Judas and Silas, who are themselves prophets, spend quite a bit of time there strengthening and encouraging the Antioch believers. Eventually, Judas and Silas leave to return to Jerusalem, while Paul and Barnabas stay in Antioch. And everybody lives happily ever after, right? Nope, not so much. The trouble is not over. Remember the missionary journey Paul and Barnabas just made to Galatia? Remember how they spent time in um, several towns in southern Galatia, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. And all all the countryside around in there. These are all clustered around major Roman roads. So foot traffic, trade, and news regularly pass through this area. When Paul and Barnabas spoke about the good news in this part of Galatia, the response was so enormous that the local Jews became jealous enough to arrange for Paul's assassination. The Jewish community is very powerful, make no mistake. And of course, since Paul and Barnabas's strategy all along has been to do their preaching in synagogues, it makes sense that although most of their converts are going to be Jews, there are certainly God-fearing Gentiles among the converts, as well as other Gentiles who heard the good news and believed. So exactly the same issues are coming up in Galatia as have just come up in Antioch. Folks from Judea and some of the believers are insisting that Gentiles in Galatia who want to follow Jesus must be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. Well, when Paul hears about this, he's like, oh, good grief. 
and he immediately dashes off a letter to be circulated among the believers in Galatia. He writes, what in the world are you thinking? How could you fall away from my teaching so quickly? I called you to live in grace, the grace of Christ, the Messiah. I don't care who is doing the preaching, even if it's an angel from heaven. If it's not what I taught you, then it's wrong. I didn't make this stuff up. I didn't even get it from another teacher. I got it straight from Jesus Christ himself. In fact, except for one brief visit to Peter alone, I never even went to Jerusalem until 14 years after Jesus called me. So none of those Jews from Judea that you hold in such high esteem influenced me at all. But I did finally go to Jerusalem with Barnabas and stood up for you Gentiles. And the leaders there, James, Peter, John, agreed with me. Of course, it didn't really matter whether they agreed with me or not. God doesn't see them as any more important. And they know that too. They know that Peter is called as an apostle to the Jews, while I am called as an apostle to the Gentiles. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? I made the message so clear. Answer me this. Did you receive the Holy Spirit through the law or through believing in what I told you? Exactly. Through believing the good news. That's exactly how Abraham did too. Abraham simply believed what God said and God considered him righteous. So you become children of Abraham by having faith. The good news that Gentiles were to be included by their faith was announced that very moment when God told Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. It is impossible to do everything written in the law. We all fail and are therefore cursed. The law does not make anyone righteous. The prophet Habakkuk said, the righteous live by faith. Christ redeemed us from the penalties of the law, having been cursed himself on our behalf. For scripture says, cursed are all who hang on a tree. By the way, that word tree can mean a cross as well. And that's how Paul seems to intend it here. Paul continues, Jesus redeemed us so that by faith, Gentiles might receive the blessing of Abraham, the promise of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> now that last bit was a little confusing. Let's look at it a little closer in our breakout groups to tease out what Paul might be saying here and why he might be saying it. This is one of those um, breakout groups where uh, the questions are longer than usual. And that's because we're dealing with Paul and we're having to compare what Paul says to what the Hebrew Bible says to what Jesus says, and then take those pieces and I'll talk about it. So, so don't be, you know, scared by it. It should, it should go quickly. I might give you just a few extra minutes in your breakout groups, um, since there's so much to talk about. All right. Pardon? <laughs> Martha was mid-sentence. Okay. Not booted out. <laughs> uh, what I was saying, we were talking about the impact of tribalism on In-N-Out, and um, I realized that the very first In-N-Out was caused by human sin, which was, um, so Jesus didn't make Adam, I don't remember if he made Adam and Eve leave the garden, but he didn't separate them but he did separate Cain hmm. when Cain murdered Abel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He did, but and yet made when, Cain murdered, when Cain murdered Abel, Cain was afraid and said, but you're sending me out and I will be killed and all kinds of horrible things will happen to me. And God said, no, no, no. I will protect you. Yeah. I will put my mark right. on you. Right. 
Yeah. And so there was a human, a, a human intentional separation that God came in and said, my rules are different. Yeah. We missed something in the other group. What's going on? <laughs> well, we, we, we took a tangent and then yeah. said, Maybe what, we should look at questions. <laughs> what happened? What happened is that Joe asked a question right off, and it kind of derailed the whole thing. So it was a great conversation, Joe. Yeah, no, I was going to say, but I think it got to the heart of the whole message. Yeah. So, and I didn't mean it that way. I was saying, but wait a minute. So, Gail, my question was, if they really came from everybody, why were we taught and taught and taught, still taught? Seeds of Abraham. Seeds of Abraham. Because everybody wasn't seeds of Abraham. Doesn't that immediately create some division, some in and out? Well, clearly, what did y'all come up with? They came up with some great stuff, yeah. <laughs> Through Christ, we're all at Abraham. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we... Um, that you were a little muddled. Just restate exactly what you said. That through Christ, we are all sons of Abraham. Thank you. I think either Martha or Marlene said that um, at the time of Abraham, uh, that culture was not ready yet to even uh, consider the idea of everybody being saved, that the, the tribalism was so strong mm -hmm. that, um, that the seed of Abraham had to be put in there to, uh, to, be, to sound legitimate to, the, to those readers or to those uh, Jews. But by the time Jesus came along, for whatever reason, the culture was a little bit more ready, or maybe they were ready to expand the idea. Yeah, I've sort of, I've sort of had this, this understanding that basically, I mean, Paul even talks about, you know, starting out as a child and, and having to have be fed with milk, etc. Um, that that God has dealt with humanity throughout history the way we teach our children. So God meets people where they are so that it's not this gigantic leap that they're not able to understand. You don't sit down with a two-year-old and try and explain string theory. Um, <laughs> you don't even try to explain the Trinity. No, no. You you talk about the stars in the sky. You talk about Jesus loves me. You know, everything is very, very simple. And then as the, the human grows and is able to understand more in-depth concepts, then we teach more in-depth. And I think that's how God has worked with all of humanity, meets us where we are, where our understanding is, how we view the world, how we view the cosmos, how we view ourselves. And then in incredibly patiently, incrementally brings us along, not only as individuals, but as a species. That's sort of my take on it. And then, and then when the Jews were more open, or the world was more open, but the Jews were looking for something specific, and they didn't get exactly what they were looking for. But isn't it interesting that um, kind of at every juncture, some wise Jew would stand up and say, yeah, but the prophets yeah. kept saying... Everybody, yeah. right. all, you know, saying, yeah, but the promise to Abraham included all. If you go back um, and read the first little bit of chapter 12 in Genesis, you know, it's, it's, you're going to be a great nation. Your name's going to be great. You're going to, you're going to be blessed and you're going to be a blessing. You will, you know, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you like that's just another way of saying you're my immediate family um, and, and and I care what happens to you. Um, all, all people on earth will be blessed by you, which is the part Paul homed in on. Um, right. I'll give your offspring this land. And then 
there's a little bit that tags on in um, chapter 15 where uh, Abraham's complaining because he hadn't had any kids yet. And God says, yeah, but your offspring will be as countless as the stars in the sky. And Abram believed him at that point and God credited it, credited it to him as righteousness. But I want to point out that always this promise has been your offspring are going to be so many, it can't even be counted. But even today, there's not very many Jews in this world. It's like some really small number, like, I don't know, 16 million or I some really tiny number. Um, and so all of that together with the chapter 12 prophecy is like, yeah, the, the issue is God's chosen people are all these other people. Mm-hmm. Includes the Gentiles. Right. Well, and that's why I finally, at the end, I was like, you know, I, we've we've gotten here with your Bible study, the overarching theme. Does this match what we know about this? Does this match what, you know, Jesus said? I, I think that occasionally the old loop that I have been taught, taught in, you know, been in for 50 years, the church was so literal, not, you know, and I think Anne made the same comment at another one that we learned these, you know, specific. And so I was really still stuck on, but wait. Did that create division when he said Abraham's kid? But y'all don't. I mean, then again, I guess how would they know that? But well, it's something I thought of with that is there is there were two children. Abraham fathered two children, mm-hmm. and God told Abraham the blessing. But he also told Hagar the blessing. Yes, he did. He said Ishmael through that that through Hagar, Ishmael would become a great nation as well. Yes. So is that saying Abraham or a can't think of his kid's name now? Isaac. Is, Isaac was the Jewish branch mm-hmm. and Ishmael was the Gentile branch. No, Ishmael did not end up being the Gentile, but well, I guess he from a Jewish point of view, it would be, but Ishmael ended up being the Muslim branch. Oh, that's right. Hmm. But, um, yeah. All of this stuff that Joe's question about the seed of Abraham, doesn't this just go back to saying you can't take everything in the Hebrew Bible literally? Well, mm-hmm. certainly not with a modern lens on it, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but we're can't... still teaching that. Stephen? <laughs> Stephen's mic. Okay. <laughs> um, but in verse, is this 16? 16. Yeah. With the word seed, Paul even points this out. It's singular seed. Mm-hmm. And the seed is Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. And Paul does that. He um, he plays with words, and that's part of his training under Gamaliel. Um, it is a uh, a way of reasoning that the Jewish um, rabbis used that tradition. And um, if you look through Scripture, and I did I did a bunch of research on this when I got to that verse, Stephen. Um, a few weeks ago, I was looking at it to see if it really made a difference um, in scripture. And what I discovered was that seed is um, used as a collective noun. So it always, it can be a singular seed, but it's rarely used that way unless somebody says, I planted a seed in the ground, you know, but when they use the word seed in general, it's a collective noun. So Paul comes out and teases this out and says, yeah, but in that particular verse, they use the singular and that's Jesus Christ. Well, he's standing on shaky logic right there Um, (laughs) because there are a couple of ways uh, of of, there are a few, very few. There are a few times that um, you can find the word uh, in in plural I just would not hang my hat on it like like Paul did. Paul was making a point. But if you really dig into the language um, and to how that word is used in the Hebrew Bible, it's 
whether it says seed or seeds, it is plural. Either one. Okay. Kind of like fish, and we're all supposed to be casting the net. Okay. So. Right. It's a collective <laughs> noun. Martha. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Martha, why don't you go and then Julia? Okay. So question about Paul's training. Um, so he's highly educated, uh, I believe. Was his education one of logic and precision and argument? What what was his educational? Okay, that's a great question. Um, he was not trained in he was not trained in the Hellenistic traditional kind of education, the Gentile education, which would have included rhetoric and logic and philosophy and all those things. Speaking, he would not have, he did not receive that kind of, of training. He yeah. might have if he'd have stayed up in Tarsus in Cilicia, um, but he didn't. His family um, put him in school in Jerusalem under um, Gamaliel. He was so respected and he was the grandson of a very respected Jewish scholar. So what Paul specifically was trained in was Jewish law. So Jewish and Jewish law at this time, it's in a, it's in kind of a state of transition because um, that you've got all the written stuff from Moses up on Mount Sinai, all that, all that stuff. But there's a lot of gaps. If you just read what's in the Hebrew Bible, it doesn't, it says, you know, don't work on the Sabbath, but it doesn't define what work is. Don't, you know, so there were a lot of gaps in actually how you do the law. And so out of that came a whole segment of Jewish um, scholarship that was called the walking, you know, walking the walk or halakhic, walk, halakhic uh, law. And it was um, oral. So it was the the Jewish scholars filling in the blanks for the people. And that specifically is what the Pharisees did. And that's why in the New Testament, when you see the people going to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are sitting there at, in, at, in and, and near the temple. The people are asking the Pharisees, well, you know, how do I make myself ritually clean? And how do I do this, that, and the other thing? They're asking the Pharisees because they're the authorities on that oral tradition or oral law. As Judaism matures um, beyond the time of Christ, as it shifts, uh, because after, uh, in, in a, in, you know, Jesus dies around 30, right? Common era, and 70 common era. There is, there's a huge war between the Jews and the Romans and the Romans, you, as you can imagine, win and they destroy the temple. And all of a sudden there is no more sacrificial system. There's no more priests. There's no nothing. And the Jews have to make a shift. And what they shift to is the law. And the people who have been keeping, holding the law, are the Pharisees. The Sadducees, they were all bound up in the temple. They were the temple workers. They were the people who, you know, were the political people. They, 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 they did the temple, but the Pharisees held the law. And, and the, the oral law that the Pharisees kept in their hearts and in their heads um, became retroactive law in the sense that it is considered as authoritative as the written law that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. The Jews consider the oral law as also having been given on Mount Sinai. So that's how Judaism survived. And we are right at that turning point here in, in history, in that story. And so Paul was educated by one of the really important pivot pivoters in this drama. And so he learned the way that if you go back and you read this 
um, tradition, this extra tradition that that is beyond just the law itself, the law, um, the written part. It's now written down, but it wasn't for centuries. Okay, it is now written down, but um, you will see that it is kind of divided into two bits. There's a part that is commentary on the scriptures, you know, on the law. It's like how you do this law. And there's other parts that are anecdotal and they just record conversations and arguments between rabbis, between well-known important rabbis who sit down and take a, a thorny problem and argue about it. And it's fascinating. And so at at a point down the road, a few, um, several hundred years later, that oral tradition and all that extra stuff that they argued about and and things like what you brought up, Stephen, about Paul saying, well, but it just says seed and it doesn't say seeds. That's the kind of thing they would talk about. That is exactly it. And they would argue about it. What that all got written down and it is now closed so it's closed canon it is the jewish canon now but it is closed you don't get to add to it anymore um uh but but uh what is remarkable is that the jews preserved both sides of the argument and did not come to a conclusion oh most often most often when you read this, you just read the argument and you're left to figure it out. <laughs> it's wonderful. That kind of goes and, and answers some or opens the door some to our group took a different path with your questions. We had someone offer a beautiful word and explanation for the fill in the blanks portion for Jesus graced us from the curse of the law because he, yeah, he, it was all happening in the big picture and he took that on. So he gave us grace through that. And then when you come to who is us, we had a couple of offerings. We went and suggested humankind, but someone pointed out something that took us a different way, which mm -hmm. is we went with the Israelites because it's from the curse of the law and they were the ones bound up by the law. Yeah. The Gentiles were not bound up by that law. So when we were defining us, because it was from the curse of the law and because it was from verse 14 where it says, he redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. But that law was still going for us. And so we started filling in the terms differently. And then when we got down to how might the definitions of redeem above shed light on what it means to redeem Israelites from the curse of the law. One of my notes says freedom, but we were heading down a different trail. Did you mean to lead us there? <laughs> you know, I just want you to think about it. And and I, I do agree that, that in the verses in Galatians, when Paul says us, he means the Jews. He oh, kind of got it. Kind of got it. That's right. Um, he he means the Jews. So so when he says in um when he says Jesus redeemed us the Jews from the curse of the law, uh, and 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 then he said and then he says he became a curse for us for the Jews. Um, cursed is everyone who has that wrong And um, he redeemed us, the Jews, in order in order that the blessing given to Abraham, which was given to the Jews, might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So he's saying, God, Jesus came and redeemed, which I love. Did y'all read the the 
the um, definitions of redeemed. Mm-hmm. In that great Jesus came to the Jews and bought out the store. Yeah. <laughs> I just love that. Jesus bought out the store. And you know, he did that his whole life um, and, and in order that the Jews might actually become what God had created them to be, what God had called them to be, a blessing to everybody else. We need to we need to not be attacking Jews or bringing them down or we need to be supporting them and lifting them up so they can be the blessing to the world they were meant to be. Same as we would do for anybody, but you know, it's just cool. Uh, Marlene and Shirley, you're having a conversation. I, I, I'm not able to read and listen at the same time. So tell me what's going on. Oh, I, I had said something about the church that my husband grew up in, which was a dispensationalist church. Mm-hmm. And I realized I had misspoken a bit on what they taught. They, they basically, their, their teaching was that, um, cause we were talking about Paul versus Jesus, you know, that, that some of the things that in letters that are attributed to Paul don't seem consistent with, um, what we've seen elsewhere. And, you know, considering that some of the letters that are attributed to Paul probably weren't written by Paul, right. um, that we had to look a little more deeply at to what he was saying. But in my husband's church, there was the, the teaching was, you know, that sort of history was divided into these different dispensations and that God's revelation came in different ways to different people. Um, at different times. That's like at different like, times. Dispensation at different... just means segment. It's just a season yeah. in history. So yeah. it's just, they just chop up history into religious history into these segments and say God relates yeah. in this way in this segment and he relates to people in this way in this segment and he relates to people differently in this yeah and and what i had said in the group was that um that they taught that paul's writing had more authority for the modern church than uh, jesus's teaching and what does that sound right to you i realized is that is that um what it was was that more that paul was you know as he said paul's ministry mission his apostleship was to the gentiles i see um, and that we, um, that, that the message that he brought to the Gentiles was the message that was meant for us. I see. Jewish people. And that is why there was more attention paid to the teachings of Paul. And also that his church didn't believe in water baptism. Because in one of Paul's letters, he said, I've never baptized anyone with water. The baptism comes from the Holy Spirit. Hmm. And so they did not water baptize um, in I his church. Paul said he had baptized a couple of people, but well, yeah, he said there were a couple of exceptions, but yeah. but in general, he, he did say, "I'm glad I didn't baptize anybody else." But he did say he baptized people, yeah, yeah, yeah. just a handful. Yeah, so um, I wanted to clarify that I wasn't saying that that Paul had more authority than Jesus. Period more that the message of Paul was directed at Gentiles and we are Gentiles. Ah, and so that begs the question then, if I accepted that as a premise, would that mean that Jesus' message was less for Gentiles? Well, my understanding, and, and, you know, he certainly could give a better answer on this. My understanding was that Jesus was speaking, you know, Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom of heaven and so uh but that that kingdom was focusing on the the sort of the fate of the jews or the 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 you know that in time the destiny of the jews i see yeah Mm -hmm. um and that and that paul's ministry being directed at the gentiles the focus was different paul didn't talk so much about the kingdom uh well that's Uh, for sure he did yeah 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 And so, um, so they they put a lot more weight. If there was a, a a discrepancy as they saw it, 
between the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Paul. They put more weight on the teachings of Paul because Paul was speaking to the Gentiles. I see. Well, I, I don't do it that way. So Good yeah. luck. <laughs> it, was, it was something I felt I needed to clarify. I always put more weight on Jesus. Um, Martha. So, so um, disclaimer, I am the person who tends to overcomplicate a lot of stuff. In this case, I just, and I, and I also believe that uh, what we're talking about deserves study and deserves heart hearts heart study and head study and some of what we're talking about today for example marlene's explanation of who paul's talking to just a lot of the stuff and the arguments between peter and paul and the, you know all this kind of stuff um we just want to overcomplicate instead of settling into God is a God of love and grace, which we seem to be able in this group to get back to, but, but, but our tendency as humans looking at who is God and what is God and why does that matter? It just feels like an eternity of overcomplication to me. Our 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 collective Christian history. Yes. Yeah. You know, well, when Marlene was talking, I think it was Marlene, someone was talking about how you feed information to young people, to children, and you bring them up. And you said, Well, we don't explain the Trinity. And I thought, you know what? A lot of young people have a much more broad openness to accepting something like that and i think when we get older we get more skeptical and we get more cynical and it's harder to reconcile there is a sweet spot when you're old enough to know and still young enough to to realize that everything in life is new to you and you can embrace it Oh, that, you know, that sort of goes back to what Jesus said, you know, that you need to be like a little child. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Woody, I heard you have something. To, well, to follow up on what Martha was saying, it seems to me like those complications that we over history have continually imposed, it seems like those were, at least in large part, to, to facilitate our tribalism. Yeah, it was that boundary making and defending those boundaries, right? How right, much you know, whether it's whether it's circumcision or baptism or whatever, or crusades it, it, or inquisition right. or what? It's, it creates the in or out. Yeah, you and know, the opposite of what Jesus told us to do. Just go toward God. Go toward God. The circumcision thing made me chuckle because that's kind of private. Who's going to know? <laughs> you know, I think there's a rule about not looking. <laughs> you know, part of the Jewish there's law. an understanding that we don't look, <laughs> you know, and unless you're very promiscuous, there's not going to be gossip. <laughs> I, I, I thought this... that was kind of crazy. And well, yes, well, the tribalism still there. I'm very proud to be Scottish, you know? <laughs> Julia, yeah. um, there is someone who would know, and that is his spouse. That's true. And, and the marriage relationship between Jews was important. So I, I get your point. Yeah. But but there at that point, it becomes very important in that context. But I mean, to take this practice to the gentiles yeah yeah it's as i said in the lesson it's about that barrier making um and the in and yeah. the out and that's just none of our business that's a who's real in and who's out is none of our business
but we do it all the time and we still do. Unless you're taught that your job is to make sure that everybody is saved. That everybody's in. Yeah. And the, and the problem we are taught that. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that if you're taught that everybody's in and it's your job to get everybody in, oftentimes my experience has been those folks are very concerned about making sure that the people who are out don't have an influence that they don't want them to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's so sad because how are you changing the world you know you're you're embrace you embrace people for where they are you should do like god does and meet people where they are that's the thing we keep coming back to so the meet people where they are has an implicit or i can i infer from that from my experiences meet them where they are and then work on them as opposed to meet them where they are and walk alongside them. Yeah, and and I, I agree, Martha, that so often the meet them where they are comes with an agenda and a map, you know, a preferred route. Um, whereas what Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount was to to come alongside them and simply shine the light. You know, in other words, we are to illuminate. We aren't to make people's choices for them. We can certainly reflect what their choices are, the what the consequences of their choices would be. You know, if we can certainly be a sounding board, we can we can provide wisdom, we can listen, we can just support them. And I think that the and I guess maybe my own petticoat is showing here, my theological petticoat. Is, is that it is not me that changes people. I think it is the Holy Spirit that changes people. The biggest revelation for me in my life was when I realized I was trying to do the Holy Spirit's work and I needed to let go and let him do his work or them, or whatever pronouns you want to use for the Holy Spirit. And my part was just to love. Mm -hmm. And support, and which that, goes to loving your even your enemies, you know? That got such a burden off of me. I love that idea of the Holy Spirit is what changes you, because that's sort of consistent with my feeling that the, being baptized in the Holy Spirit that simply, to me, that simply means that this person is changed. That they have become changed by believing. That is baptism in the Holy Spirit. Very nice. nice. Martha? I think... Let, Martha had her hand up. I want to relay a conversation that I had just this morning with a neighbor of mine who's a an international flight attendant. Um. On in her very first week of work, um, she was in the first class cabin and she said there was a woman who was rude and she said not so much outwardly, but she had an air of rudeness. And so she was like, oh, this is going to be a problem. But she decided she she ended up having a conversation with her. And um, so this gets to how we transform the world. It turns out that recently, in a span of 30 days, her husband died, her brother died of a drug overdose, and while um, they were um, having the funeral, so like the funeral week for her brother, her mother died. Oh my goodness. This oh, woman's wow. ability to self-regulate was shot. And... My point here is that all the most powerful thing that um, Risha did was to be curious and listen. What changed Risha's life as a flight attendant is she never assumes that somebody who is rude is rude for rude's sake. 
Mm. And so she makes space for hurting people. And to me, that is transformative. Mm -hmm. How she's being in the world is transformative. And that's what I think it means to be the salt of the earth. Mm -hmm. No expectation on those people ever doing anything other than taking their time to heal. Mm -hmm. And to giving, holding space. Yep. Yep. We have gone way over. I knew we would. I knew this was going to be a monster lesson. <laughs> we will see y'all next week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your birthday. Happy birthday, Gail. Happy birthday, Gail. Have a great birthday. Happy birthday. Have a wonderful birthday. Thank you. <laughs>